0: How do you choose to be a wounded healer and a joy spreader, rather than a wounded herder and a returner of hatred? That's an unbelievable spiritual struggle, unbelievable sense of trying to keep your eye on something larger than yourself. That's what our education is about. That's what Paide is about. That's what Simone Weil meant when she said, formation of attention. How do you get our young students to attend to the things that really matter to make them love warriors and freedom fighters and wounded healers? How do we cultivate critical sensibility and undergo a maturation of a compassionate soul? All simultaneously, that's bona fide bonafide right there. You get the right formation of attention, the right cultivation of critical sensibilities, and the right maturation of a compassionate and loving soul You've got some exemplars.
1: Hey, everyone. You are listening to a very special episode of Sacred and Profane Love, which was recorded in front of a live audience in Annapolis, Maryland, as part of the Classic Learning Test's third annual Higher Education Summit, where scholars and educators gathered for several days to discuss how tradition is not the worship of ashes, but the preservation of fire. If you are a new listener, Sacred and Profane Love is a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina and a proud fellow of the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. You can follow me on social media, I'm on Twitter, at Jen Frey, and on Instagram, at Professor Essa Frey. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, where our handle is at EudaimoniaPod. In this episode, I speak with one of the greatest intellectuals of our time and fierce advocate for the traditional liberal arts, Dr. Cornell West. Professor West and I discuss James Baldwin's collection of essays, The Fire Next Time, and also his debut novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
2: All right. Good evening. Again, I, I am so excited for this next part, uh, a podcast I love. There's actually only two podcasts. Spencer Clavin, where are you at? He may be out here right now. Uh, two podcasts I listen to on a regular basis, which is Young Heretics, because you got to listen to Young Heretics, Spencer Clavin, uh, and then Sacred and Profane Love, which is the podcast that Jen Frey hosts, uh, awesome top 1% uh, globally podcast, um, and then really, truly, Uh, America's top uh, public intellectual, the one and only Dr. Cornell West. Uh, So this is going to be an amazing, amazing conversation. Uh, Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you both so much for believing uh, in CLT as well and putting your names behind what we're doing here. Uh, Dr. Frey, I will turn it over to you.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Well, welcome everyone to a very special episode of Sacred and Profane Love. Uh, The title of this episode is James Baldwin is bringing the fire in light of our theme for this gathering. And for my listeners, we are at the um, Classical Learning Test Higher Education Summit. So we've been uh, talking about higher education. And I run this podcast. I am not a professional podcaster. I'm a philosopher, a professor. So why do I do this podcast? Well. I like having these kinds of conversations, so it's selfish in a way, these are the kinds of conversations that give me joy, but I really wanted to model intellectual friendship and intellectual joy for students, because I think when we talk about why you should study the liberal arts, we give all the wrong arguments, or we tend to give all the wrong arguments, I mean, for me, it makes me really happy. These kinds of conversations bring me a kind of really deep happiness, and intellectual friendship brings me a really deep happiness. And so I am beyond thrilled to be having a conversation this evening uh, with Dr. Cornell West about James Baldwin. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast.
0: Well, I wanna begin by saluting you. Let, let, let us salute Professor Jennifer Frey. Wonderful work that she does, University of South Carolina and and University of Chicago, and the backdrop, University of Pittsburgh, and trying to bring together the relation between both the existential, the spiritual, but the intellectual at the center, and with that sense of joy. And that joy is a hard thing to find among professional managerial class. It is. But we do want to salute Brother Jeremy, Jeremy Tate. I mean, he's uh, he's one of a kind. He's one of a kind. Let's give it up for Brother Jeremy <laughs> Tate. He's got such a magnificent spirit in what he's doing with the classical. But thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's truly my pleasure. So we are going to be talking about James Baldwin. Specifically, we're going to be talking about The Fire Next Time, which was a collection of two essays. And then his his first novel, which is Go Tell It on the Mountain, which I think is a masterpiece, but I'm very interested in what you think about it. Now, I, I first read James Baldwin in, in high school, and it basically blew my mind, mm-hmm. because I'd never encountered writing like that, and, and it really had a, a profound impact on me, and one of the first fruits of reading James Baldwin was that I realized, I really need to read the Bible. <laughs> Because it was such biblical writing. Absolutely. And and but it was also like really cool. And I thought those were probably totally incompatible. (laughs) So it just I just admired him so much as a writer. And coming back to him now, obviously much older now, we won't talk about how much older, but The thing that really strikes me about him now is how he's kind of struggling to navigate the different pressures between the sort of the pressures and demands of art on the one hand and activism, politics on the other. But I just want to invite you to say, you know, when you first encountered him, what it was like, what it's meant to you in your career.
0: Yeah, well, James Baldwin's one of those figures who... Not just radically unsettle you, but they, he can turn your world upside down. Uh, I began responding to Baldwin uh, with a critique, if not an indictment, because when I first read Baldwin, he, he would say over and over again, I didn't find love in the church. That's right. And then he moves in an Emersonian direction. He says, and I speak based on my experience. I said, yes, I speak based on my experience. I found unbelievable love in the church. And so I knew that he and I, both on the chocolate side of town, <laughs> black church tradition, were still looking at the world in part through different lens, very different lens. Now, we know James Baldwin's favorite American novelist was a genius named Henry James. Henry James wrote a letter to a near genius named Robert Louis Stevenson January 12, 1901. He said, no theory is kind to us that cheats us of seeing. No theory is kind to us that cheats us of seeing. And as a kind of literary disciple of Henry James, Baldwin's going to be true to his experience. I have to allow the lens through which he views the world to unsettle my world so that the love that I received in the West family, Irene and Clifton and Cynthia and Cheryl and Clifton and Shiloh Baptist Church and Reverend Willie P. Cook and Sarah Ray, my vacation Bible school teacher, and Deacon Hinton. Those were love warriors. I said, Brother Baldwin missed out. I feel so sad for him. And now I've got to learn. I've got to humble myself. And, see, it's, and he then lays bare this hatred, this envy, this resentment that he picked up in Harlem in that Pentecostal church. And I have to say to myself, lo and behold, like any other group of human beings, like any other tradition, any other community, any other heritage, there's a variety of different lenses through which people view the world. All notions of homogeneity are pushed out. And as I got deeper into Baldwin, I began to see who this brother is a Socratic prophet. And that's a rare thing, because prophet begins with tears, and Socrates never sheds a tear. But Socrates has an intellectual integrity that is boundless. So Baldwin enacts a tear-soaked critical self-examination and self-interrogation and self-scrutiny. Socrates engages in unbelievable self-scrutiny, no tears. And you say, hmm, that's fascinating. It brings together the best of the Socratic legacy of Athens and the prophetic legacy of Jerusalem in Baldwin, flowing through him. So on the one hand, agony, anguish, sadness, sorrow. On the other hand, trying to learn how to see things more broadly and more clearly and more honestly. But the connection between trying to see more deeply and clearly with trying to feel more honestly and authentically. And Baldwin, we all remember the critique of James Baldwin of Richard Wright. The problem with Richard Wright is that when he looks at black culture, he sees self-hatred and self-violation and self-destruction. Then Baldwin presents his novel, and you see a whole lot of self-hatred, a whole lot of self-violation, a whole lot of self-destruction. And Richard Wright says, welcome to the club, Jimmy. <laughs> but that's not true for Zora Neale Hurston. No, it's not true for Toni Morrison. Now, we also know with Baldwin that he becomes a kind of what I would call democratic saint. and Brother Robbie's absolutely right that E.M. Saran says that a saint ain't nothing but a sinner who looks at the world through the lens of the heart. And Baldwin is a democratic saint because when he looks at what he sees as American democracy, rendering him marginal and his people dehumanized and debased, it cracks open his heart. And it almost enacts the word that Shakespeare created, heartache. Never used in this language until Shakespeare came along. Heartache. Ooh, did Sappho talk? No, that's bittersweet. That's a little different than heartache now. She was already on the bittersweet. But Baldwin's heart is forever cracked open. In fact, we don't. The closest thing you get in, in European literature, 19th century, is a genius named Aldalbert Stifter, who was a favorite novelist of Nietzsche and Thomas Mann and Kafka. And, and Stifter is every novel, every story. His heart is just overflowing with sadness and sorrow. You can understand why Nietzsche loved it. and Baldwin is able in that way to unsettle us on all of these different registers the problem these days is that Baldwin is too confined to just the political terrain so if you read Baldwin just tied to the political terrain you're going to miss so much of his richness and his His deepness. I mean, another way of looking at him, as I continued to read Baldwin, was to see him as a culmination of the Emersonian tradition in American culture, which is one of self-reliance, self-trust, which is one of Montaigne. Emerson wanted to be the American Montaigne. He he couldn't do it. We we Americans fall short. Uh, um, But he's moving in that direction. He's wrestling with Montaigne in that Representative Men uh, essay, you see. Why? Because Montaigne was the first not just to create the genre of the essay, but he was the first to lay bare at the level of candor what was going on inside of him with all of the contingency and temporality and sense of passing moments. And Baldwin is very much tied to this sense of always beginning with himself in a self-critical mode. He's been criticized, in fact, for saying everything he wrote was just a version of what was going on inside of him. And you can imagine the guy, St. Augustine, sitting in the back. I am a question to myself. (laughs) Not just in the Confessions, even in the theology, even in City of God. There's a whole lot of Augustine wrestling with what is inside of him. And it's partly because he understood that it goes back to Paul, actually, our Jewish brother Paul, Roman citizen and Jewish brother Paul, this sense of being so candid about how the hounds of hell are forever unleashed on the battlefield of each and every one of our souls, of greed, of hatred, of envy, and resentment, And so in that sense, Augustine becomes very modern. Mm -hmm. Paul becomes very modern. And all the modernist fetishizing of subjectivity needs to be called into question and say, "We just read some epistles by this particular (laughs) Jewish brother (laughs) tied to a Palestinian Jewish brother who means the world to many of us. But then that unleashing of that tradition of Jerusalem and all of its various voices connected to those voices coming out of Athens and Rome and Paris. And it's not just, it goes on, it's Timbuktu, it's New York, it's Paris, it's Weimar, it's Tokyo, and so forth and so on. But the dominant orientation of a Baldwin is so rooted in what has been lacking in American culture for the last 100 years or so, which is genuine biblical literacy.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, he's a very spiritual writer. Absolutely. And it's, I mean, you really, and this was something that struck me. I was raised a nun, so I was raised without religion. None and N O N E, as in oh, no religion. Oh, oh, that's a. Oh, oh! oh I, I missed that. I would, that's a demographic term.
0: <laughs> I missed that. I, uh, I heard N U N, and he said no. no religion. I said, oh, this is no. complicated. This yeah. is complicated. <laughs>
1: no. no, I'm just very Gen X. So, uh, anyway, and it just struck me right away. I mean, all of the metaphors and and, and all of the language, but not just the Bible, but also the language from the black spirituals. I mean, there's something very musical about his writing that really just hits you. It's very powerful. And he's also a spiritual writer in that he struggles so much with spiritual issues of you know, the human person and what is the sense and meaning of our life. What is freedom? What's the relationship between knowledge and freedom? I mean, it seems to me, but obviously I want to know what you think, but it seems to me that like for Baldwin, the goal, the main goal was truth and the, and the master of virtue was honesty and, and maybe courage, fortitude. You know, he always talks about endurance and just this need to, to tell the truth because without the truth, we can never be free.
0: Well, I think you're absolutely right. Remember, he begins his first collection of essays. I want to be an honest man, and he drops the mic. Then he asks, "I want to be a writer." Then he says, "And I want to endure like Hemingway." Well, that was, you know, back in the fifties. We know Hemingway's not T.S. Eliot, so Hemingway's no James Joyce. Let's just be honest about that. We love you, Ernest. But in, that, in those days, that was the highest exemplar, you see. But you know, there's a wonderful moment in the great uh, Rabbi Heschel's last book that he finished right before he died called A Passion for Truth. And it's very much on Baal Shem and on the, the uh, skeptic who went off in a cave for 20 years because he gave up on humanity in many ways. But he ends the book the last the next last essay that Kierkegaard writes on why he's upset that honesty was never named a virtue in Christian life. Because honesty is not the same as faith and hope and love. It just is and for Baldwin again he's running back and forth between this rich prophetic legacy of Jerusalem, and Socratic legacy of Athens, with his modern interlocutors, especially Henry James and Hemingway. Every once in a while, little eat. But honesty is something that he gets through his own existential struggle of wrestling with the bombardment of hatred coming at him in the broader sense, he comes from a people who have been so chronically hated for 400 years. That's what the, the richest legacy of white supremacy is. And it's manifest in his father. As we know both from the novel and his own life, his stepfather, David.
1: He said, yeah, that telling him
0: He's it. ugly every day with his eyes and his skin color and so forth and so on. And Baldwin has to find something to fall back on. And what he falls back on is the deep sense of piety, not religious piety, when he after he leaves the church, he's still deeply tied to piety. Because piety is fundamentally about remembrance, reverence, and resilience. And you can be secular. John Dewey talks about natural piety. Sarayana talks about natural piety, the sources of good in your existence from your move, from your mama's womb to tomb. That's remembrance. That's reverence to something bigger than your ego. That allows you to be resilient in the face of a whole host of forms of bombardment, like those hounds of hell. Greed, hatred, envy, resentment coming at us every day as human beings in a variety of different sources. And Baldwin's honest, candid wrestling with himself. And in that sense, it actually cuts deeper than Socrates, because you don't really. Find out too much about Socrates' relation to Xanthippe or his sons. Why, when she's crying, he pushes her out of the room. Oh, do these tears frighten you, Socrates? I thought you were courageous. <laughs> uh, maybe you never really loved somebody. You never shed a tear. We won't go into that right now. But the uh, <laughs> but, but 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 for Baldwin, he wants to hold on to the best of Socrates. And then he wants to out-Socratize Socrates. He wants to criticize Socrates and say, when I turn to Hebrew scripture, I see tears. Something deeper is going on there with these oppressed people who make a covenant with a God that tells them that for you to really be true to me, you have to spread chesed, you have to stretch some steadfast love and loving kindness to the orphan and widow and the godless and the fatherless and the motherless. You gotta to to learn how to open yourself and be candid with yourself. You got to, to understand your own inadequacies, the humility that Brother Robbie was talking about, and be open to something called grace that Augustine would make so much of. Now we Protestants, of course, you know, push it pretty far with Carl Barton, <laughs> Bonhoeffer, and others. So the grace becomes such a capital G that it tends to cast a shadow on everything. Uh, and we have to be, I think, a bit critical of that as well. But, the, uh, uh, but, but the, the, the honesty that you get in Baldwin. You know, when he says over and over again, you know, mirrors lie to us. Mirrors mm-hmm. lie to us. There's a taint of mortality in lies. That's one of his favorite lines that he gets from Joseph Conrad's. Heart of Darkness of 1899. He starts off that second essay, Invoking Kipling, you remember? Mm -hmm. White Man's Burden, that appeared appeared in 1899, the same year as Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness in the New York Sun newspaper. And then he shifts directly to Down by the Cross. Yeah. Down by the cross, back to the biblical literacy that, that you talked about. And what does that cross really mean for him? So when I teach Baldwin, uh, when he talks about beginning with down, with down by the cross, I start with Johannes Sebastian's box, St. Matthew's Passion of 1727, see, the lament of the women. What, it, what that cross is really about in terms of not just suffering, because suffering can be so easily fetishized these days and commodified, but its connection to rejection, shame, humiliation, and then the possibility of bounce back. So it's the stage and the passion. And Bach, being a good Lutheran, Eddie, was but of course his genius can be reducible just to his his his, his, his Lutheranism. Uh, means then, oh, there's Baldwin now. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Listen to Mahalia Jackson sing that song, and see how it resonates with Box Saint Matthew's passion. Now, I'm not talking about Saint John because that's. Got that ugly anti-Jewish hatred shot too much in it that needs to be radically called into question. But oh, when he gets three years later, the Matthew. Oh, Bach's got something profound happening in terms of what that cross, down by the cross. Come with me. With biblical literacy on the one hand, existential honesty on the other and then situating it within an America that is so often, especially at that time, but some ways still today, views itself as so innocent. You see? And anybody who views himself as innocent is in a pre-paideia condition.
1: I mean, I think one thing that's so interesting about these essays in the fire next time mm-hmm. is his struggle not to hate. Absolutely. So this is something that he, he is, I mean, one, one thing that, and this comes up also in the semi autobiographical novel, go tell it on the mountain. That's right. um, he is taught to hate white people by his father. Well, really his stepfather, but also by people in the church. That's right. There's this, incredible meeting that he has with the leader of the nation of Islam where it's such a human encounter because on the one hand Baldwin has so much respect for him and and he even says you know he's a beautiful man right but he but he's like look this is this is just as bad this is this is hatred this is hatred of a different kind and he wants to turn his back on that But I do think it's difficult for him.
0: Oh, you're so right. And there, of course, Baldwin is to be viewed as a wave in an ocean of a tradition. How is it the case that the Frederick Douglases grew up just 40 miles away from here? Or the Harriet Tubmans, whose Bible Brother Robbie borrowed when we went into the Chief Justice's office Brother John Roberts and I held that Bible with him with his precious and priceless parents right there. And we praying for them because they right now having a rough time, you see. How did Harriet Tubman do it? In the face of that chronic hatred, keep being a love warrior. Oh, that's a rich tradition. Baldwin, you know, he was a, he he was a left hand, he wrote his southpaw. I used to spend time with him at the, at the McHale's nightclub. His brother ran a nightclub on 98th in Columbus. So I would see Baldwin in there all the time. He's always just in there writing, you know, looks like he's Sandy Koufax. So he got this left <laughs> Southpaw. And, uh, uh, and and he'd always said he had to listen to some music. He had to listen to Mahia Jackson when he's writing. He had to listen to Ma Rainey when he's writing had to listen to Bessie Smith, Those Love Warriors. That's like Aretha Franklin, that's like Stevie Wonder's love and the need of love that's like that's like John Coltrane's a love supreme a love supreme how do these love warriors keep coming in the face of this hatred it's not a function of skin pigmentation some spiritual formation some ethical cultivation some courageous action has to be enacted there must be some examples in their lives in their history that they are focusing on it's connected to a Palestinian Jew named Jesus but others who are appropriated that Jesus are willing to enact that kind of love in the face of the hatred saying what? We refuse to be in the gutter even as your hatred is in the gutter. We got classical Christian love, which is you hate the sin and you still love the sinner. Yes. Well that's, 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 that's where Baldwin's we're coming from. And that's what so many of us learn in the Shiloh Baptist churches and other, please, that's where Martin King comes from. That's where Toni Morrison comes from. That's where, and of course, we're losing that tradition. We, 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 We can talk about that. But Baldwin was so candid about it that even when he confronts the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, which is fascinating, you see, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad saw his uncle lynched in Gut Bucket, Jim Crow, Georgia. He began as a Baptist minister, just like Malcolm X's father. In Omaha, Nebraska, who was killed by the Klan, his body pushed in front of a train. This is not Anna Karenina-like suicides. The brother was pushed in front of the train. (laughs) And in the midst of that kind of wound, how do you choose to be a wounded healer and a joy spreader rather than a wounded herder? and a, a returner of hatred. That's an unbelievable spiritual struggle, unbelievable sense of trying to keep your eye on something larger than yourself. That's what our education is about. That's what Paide is about. That's what Simone Weil meant when she said, formation of attention. How do you get our young students to attend to the things that really matter to make them love warriors and freedom fighters and wounded healers? How do we cultivate critical sensibility and undergo a maturation of a compassionate soul? All simultaneously. That's bona fidea right there. You get the right formation of attention, the right cultivation of critical sensibilities, and the right maturation of a compassionate and loving soul. You've got some exemplars. And when Kant says in the first critique, I know we got your husband and I had a wonderful dialogue about you All magnificent... Uh, uh, philosophical education with each other and others but you remember in Kant's first critique examples are the gold card of judgment that's what Kant says in the critique of pure reason when he reaches a point where he recognizes you can't appeal to a rule in order to learn how to apply a rule it's a Wittgensteinian right. moment right? you got to have an example to know how to apply a rule because the rule won't tell you how to apply it it's just a rule <laughs> Exemplarity. Now, of course, religious traditions have already laid this out. Try Thomas Aquinas, imitation of Christ. One example, Loyola. We got a whole host of traditions. I don't even believe we Christians have a monopoly on Judaism's got great examples. Buddhism does. Hinduism does. But I'm partisan and very, very prejudiced. Uh, toward, toward Jesus. So, <laughs> when my, my, my younger brother was so magnificent, when he said, Jesus is the truth, I was gonna shout, but I held back, though, brother. I held back on that. The truth is not a proposition, the truth is a person. It's a way, it's a life, it's a follow me, it's a discipleship, it's a way of making a leap into a darkness and recognizing you're gonna step out on nothing, but you still might land on something if you've undergone the right kind of metanoia, the right kind of conversion, and so forth. And it's not a matter of preaching, it's simply a matter of making. What is inside of one's heart, the love inside of one's heart coincide with the mind's conviction. So it's not anti-intellectual. But it's not solely intellectual. It connects the love of truth with the truth of love. The love of truth with the truth of this enactment of a divine love in space, fleshified, concretized, ending up on a cross, given the powers that be of the Roman Empire, and then unleashing all of those blood drops, those love drops, so that most of human history, and this is what Baldwin is very clear about, most of human history will be the history of hatred and greed and envy and resentment and domination and oppression. The question is, Kairos, how do we create moments of interruption, moments of eruption, Moments of disruption. So people can see something different than Thrasymachus. We don't just want might makes right. We don't want just power dictating reality. We want to see something different. And people want to see it. They don't just want to hear people talking about it. (laughs) Oh, yes, because the sophists and Thrasymachus, they could talk a good game. But people want to see it in one's life in terms of that formation of attention. What does it really mean to be a person of Paideia who exercises the parhesia of fearless and unintimidated speech, of bearing witness, and then having the phronesis, the practical wisdom to be able to negotiate and navigate with one's eyes on a kingdom? And what we learn in Shiloh Baptist Church is if the kingdom of God is within you, then everywhere you go, you ought to leave a little heaven behind. (laughs) And the question becomes, what does that heaven look like? What does it feel like? How do people perceive it and see it in community, in relationships? Brother Robbie and I have magnificent experiences in that regard, we, we, they all describe us. This is a strange, ideological, odd couple. We don't understand how they could be in the same room together. And we say, my God, it's like breathing. I love him and he loves me. Well, that's a nice act of civility. No, it's deeper than civility. That's a wonderful friendship. It's deeper than friendship. I love him, and he loves me. And the love is not reducible to politics. Of course, I think he's wrong on a whole lot of issues. <laughs> <laughs> of course, he thinks I'm wrong on a whole lot of issues. My wife loving and respecting him. Just I love Cindy. I love his kids. He loves my kids. Take a bullet for him. Why? Because he's my brother, and we have cultivated over time the kind of trust, the kind of profound affiliation and connection in terms of his decency, his integrity, and his sense of humor, (laughs) which is part of his humanity. And a lot of people just can't understand why, because we live in a society where it's just so hard for people to see it becomes so beclouded. It's hard for people to feel. We only really f- like somebody if they agree with us. What an impoverished life. What kind of Thanksgiving dinner do you have with your family? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody agree with political issues around the turkey and the ha- My god.
1: <laughs>
0: what but- kind of discussion you have in the barbershop, in the beauty salon? Heterogenetic diversity cuts across all of us in a variety of different ways within racial groups, across within class, within national identities, across the board. Let's just be honest enough to acknowledge that there are these possibilities that allow us to transcend these narrow constructs of race and gender and sexual orientation, even though they have done damage to precious human beings. White supremacy is no joke. Male supremacy is no joke. Homophobia is no joke. Wealth inequality is no joke. People suffer. People are dying. We were in Harlem last night on 132nd Street. Oh, my God. Oh, it was something. We talked about Baldwin mm-hmm. because he, comes, he grew up right around the corner. Yeah. Right around the corner. It's interesting how Baldwin never gets a college degree, but a college goes through him.
1: That's right. He's basically an autodidact.
0: Real by day, it goes through him. That's a beautiful thing.
1: Can we talk about the relationship between art and politics for Baldwin? Because for him, it's complex. And obviously, he has very explicit political goals. You know, at the end of the fire next time, he mm-hmm. says, you know, I want to end the racial nightmare in which all Americans are forced to live. Where, of course, I mean, so he thinks, you know, white people are also forced to live in this nightmare. Oh, absolutely. But he also, you know, um, has a couple of famous essays, everybody's protest novel, Notes on a Native Son, where he critiques the protest novel, and, and, and so I just wonder if we could talk about how he sees the relationship between art and activism or mm-hmm. politics.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a wonderful question, and it's a very complicated one. One, because it's changing all the time as his corpus develops. You know, he's in Paris, he's struggling for his artistic identity, and he's trying to wrestle with what does it mean to, to bear witness on the one hand, and what does it mean to actually ascend to the highest levels of artistic creativity. So that's you know, the Shakespeare's and the Dante's. I'm talking about the kind of Muhammad Ali-like figures in the history of the literary arts. The greatest of all time. The Shakespeare's and the Dante's and the Gerdas and so forth, you see. Uh, um, and he knows after a while, that's not me. I'm going to be a great essayist. But after I read Fyodor Dostoevsky, it's like after you listen to Charlie Parker as you play the saxophone, <laughs> he said, I, I think I need to try something else. <laughs> Theodore Justin took this thing to a level. Tolstoy and to Chekhov and took this thing to a level. I, I can't fool myself no more. Well, television said you're the next Dostoevsky. Yeah, that's, that's a nice PR move. I know who I am. They lying. <laughs> and so what happens with Baldwin is, is that he says, I'm going to be the best that I can be. I'm going to be the best that I can be. And he gets caught owing to his love of truth and beauty and goodness. But he gets caught in the whirlwinds of courageous human beings, fellow citizens, disproportionately black, but not exclusively black, trying to break the back of American apartheid, legalize Jim Crow. And he says, I'm going back to the belly of the beast. I'm going back to the South. And going back to the South, he gives up so many novels. We've got so many different uh, um, papers of novels he couldn't finish because he went back into the South. And of course, going back in the South meant what? Willing to give up your life. He was ready to die. And it it connects to the the interview with Donald Elijah Muhammad, because remember what he said? He said, I looked at Elijah Muhammad's face, and I wondered what he would sound like if he sang the blues because he could see Muhammad, uh, uh, Elijah Muhammad's honesty. He didn't say a word he didn't mean. He mean what he said, and he said what he meant. That's where Malcolm X came from, too. He'll change his mind, but he's not going to be posing and posturing. You see, he's not going to be just putting on the mask and using as a way of weaponizing their careers and so forth. He going to be honest, or what Ashford and Simpson call the real thing. This is where we are. This is where I am. Honorable Elijah Muhammad could change, as Malcolm would change, as would Baldwin. But Baldwin says, I like that sense of honesty. Can I be
1: that? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think just to pick up on that, I mean, mm-hmm. I think his main critique of the protest novel, so like his, you know, the archetype of the protest novel is Uncle Tom's Cabin, is that it's untruthful because it was written explicitly with a political aim, right? So the aim wasn't to reveal truth about the human person, the human condition, but to convince people of something, namely that slavery right. is horrible. Which to Baldwin is like, well, I mean, that's just obvious. You don't but he thought that, you know, in order to write a novel to that end, you basically had black characters who were caricatures, Mm -hmm. right? Who weren't who weren't real people with real faults and problems. And I think he just thought that was horrible. It was like a sin against art.
0: Yeah, but you know, I think he went too far with that though. Um, Why? Because our world is, you know, big enough for a whole lot of different kind of people. Lawrence Welk has a role to play. <laughs> <laughs> Bubbles and all. Bubbles and all. We don't. He don't have to be Arnold Stromberg, You know. Uh, uh, see, part of what Baldwin was saying was. He was creating a space for himself as a writer against a superego, against a father, against a mentor, Richard Wright. And you read Native Son, nobody can say that Richard Wright was not in some sense telling the truth. Bigger Thomas does have certain truths. The problem was, and this is where Baldwin was right, that he blurs into a stereotype in order to be used as a weapon against the sleepwalking of the large numbers of vanilla brothers and sisters. Well, that's called protest literature. There's a role for that. That's not Dante. That's not Shakespeare. That's not Flaubert. But there's a role for that. It's called polemics. And so we got to be more jazz-like and say, you know, there's a lot of different kind of people out there playing different kind of roles and functions. And sometimes you need some of these protest folk who are not going to render the richest humanity of a figure because that figure is being used for a larger polemical in the name. And of course Baldwin himself would end up writing some protest literature too, where just like the self-hatred and self-violation and self-destruction, oh, here it comes again. Welcome to the club of humanity, brother. Welcome to. But why is that also important? And this is where I think the your point is a profound one. That sentimentality is a form of blindness that doesn't allow us to see the depth and scope of our humanity. Oscar Wilde used to say, the, the, "The sentimentalist is just the flip side of the cynic." You scratch a sentimentalist and you get a cynic. Because sentimentalism is the notion that you can have an emotion without paying for it. See, that's Oscar Wilde in the prison, our gay brother, you see. It's the notion that you can have passions that are not honest in the end all the way down. And that's where your point about you know this sense of the stereotype getting in the way of the richer humanity. I think you and Baldwin are right, but there there is a, a a role to play. I mean, I think one of the things about following Jesus is recognizing that. Everybody doesn't have the same calling, the same vocation, the same gifts, the same disposition, the same orientation. Everybody's who they are and not somebody else. And given our uniqueness, and given our singularity, and given our distinctive gifts, we all can make different kinds of contributions on a lot of different registers, really. And what happens to Baldwin, of course, is that uh, when his you know, best friends end up shot down, Medgar and Malcolm and Martin and the four girls, uh, he becomes a different person. He really does. Uh, when you read No Name in the Streets in 1972, it's a different Baldwin than fire Next Time. Mm-hmm. And that's true for all of us, right? Catastrophe's on its way to our house. When your mama dies, you're not the same person after. Yeah. When your, your loved one dies, you're not the same person. You, you're tested. You can come out stronger. You can come out weaker, but you are who you are. And that's what life is about. That's what it is to be in what Samuel Beckett called the mess or what i call the funk which is just being in space, in time. We are temporal beings in history who face mortality, who will be tested at various moments in our journey. And at various moments in that journey, Baldwin can say X, another moment he can say Y. Baldwin tried to commit suicide four times. Four times. People don't like to talk about that. That's the Jimmy Baldwin we love. That's a certain kind of honesty, too. That's probably what me and Robbie say when our students come into our class, and we tell them, you have come in this class to learn how to die, not to commit suicide, <laughs> but to learn how to die. Because <clears throat> when you interrogate your assumptions and presuppositions and dogma that you're bringing in here, some of them are going to die for you to emerge stronger seeing more broadly, feeling more deeply, being more humble, able to straighten your back out and engage in courageous action. And that's, those are the seeds that we plant. And you all, of course, are all living examples of the seeds you plant. And then you see those precious folk year after year after year after year. Oh my, we just saw one with the young brother there with his bow tie looking so sharp and brilliant. Oh my god. What did he sound like four years ago? We can imagine. You don't have to tell us, brother. We don't have to tell us. And look at him now. What is he going to sound like four years from now? Continually undergoing paideia, continually undergoing that growth and maturation, broadening, and yet knowing that you have to have some resources to deal with crisis and catastrophe, individual, global, nuclear, ecological, social political but know that the resources are going to be there so you will be able to endure and that's what Baldwin wanted to do he wanted to endure
1: yeah he did are you up for talking about go tell it on the mountain absolutely okay so go tell it on the mountain is his is his debut novel I think very highly of it. Yes, um, yes. It's, great.
0: it's a great novel.
1: It's semi-autobiographical. The main character, John, is, is clearly a Baldwin-type yeah, character. And it's absolutely. just it's just one day in his life. And what happens to John is that he is saved. Saved on the threshing floor.
0: Threshing floor.
1: And throughout the novel, it's a, it's a modernist novel, so it goes back and forth through time and different narratives and... Uh, but it's bookended with John. It starts with John, and then it's John's father and his aunt and his mother, and then it, it comes back to John at the end. Now, throughout the novel, there are these visions, right? There are these visions and conversions, and there's this underlying quest for redemption right. and salvation. And John is following his Calling, right, to be in the Pentecostal church where his stepfather, with whom he has an absolutely disastrous relationship, is a deacon. And it ends with him really having a, a dark night of the soul, oh, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, and at the end of it, he he comes out of it and he says, I've been, you know, I've been saved from the darkness, and now I'm in the light, I've been saved, and and we're sort of meant to believe that this is the beginning of, of his ministry in the Pentecostal church. But I it, does John really believe it? I mean, I mean, that's really my question about this novel for you. You know, yeah, does does John yeah, yeah. really believe it? Is are are we as readers meant to take his vision and his conversion? To be real.
0: Mm, mm. Well, a lot of critics have spent a lot of ink on that deep question. It's a good one. See, I agree with you in this sense, and you tell me what your take is. I think it's a profoundly Augustinian novel. So that even as the move toward conversion on that threshing floor at the end, with all of the flashbacks, and you see what resources are available, what resources he views as insufficient. You see? That in the end, the conversion in a certain sense is just another beginning of the story given the persistence of an old self that can never be completely extricated. You see? And the question will be, can that John Grimes With Elijah, because he's wrestling with his gay identity and homosexuality and so forth, Mm -hmm. relation with Elijah. And with, in Baldwin's own life, two fundamental persons who are missing in the novel. One was a white sister named Beale, Mrs. Miller who was his teacher, right. who would take him to the museums, take him to the Broadway to see the Rogers and Hammersteins. Unfortunately, he didn't get a chance to see the genius of Sondheim as a youth. That probably helped things out a lot. Uh, uh, but he, he saw the early wave of American theaters, not too deep and rich until Sondheim gets in there and turns it upside down. But it takes him to the plays of Shakespeare and Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller and. And, 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 and Lorraine Hansberry, of course, he and Lorraine are so close, very, very close. And so that becomes one of the things he falls back. So on the other is, is Buford Delaney, who becomes his godfather, who was a great artist who lived in the village, he was a great painter. And so those resources aren't available in the novel for, right. that Baldwin himself will fall right. back on to sustain him, you see. So you wonder whether John's conversion is an actual one or not.
1: Right.
0: You know, whether it's, it's enough to sustain us. We've all seen folk who, you know, get very uh, full of a certain kind of fire for a, few, for, for a little while and then run out of gas quickly. I mean, I tell that to my young brothers and sisters of all colors these days. We talk about, they woke, they woke, they woke. I said, you stay woke, you're going to suffer from insomnia. <laughs> you need phronesis. <laughs> you need some practical wisdom. <laughs> You need need fortitude, take a nap, go to sleep, time it. You gotta be a marathoner in the life of love and justice. You just can't stay woke, 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 woke all the time. Yeah. Literally or metaphorically, that's always already a sign of a certain market conception of the world, a commodified mode of being in the world where you got something. Right. You say, hey, this is not a some possession. Nobody possesses truth. You're in quest of truth. You're humble in the face of truth. When you fall in love, you think you got love. You got your love. Part of me and Anna hit to fall in love. I don't got what we like the song I Got You, Babe by Sonny and Cher. But, but, I, no, no. We are a twosome in a journey with unbelievable joy and love and something that's new. But we know we're living in the world of the mess, the fault, the greed, the fear, the hatred. And it runs through every human soul. Every person across the board, you see. And Baldwin himself, I think, you know it begins to recognize that already in this I mean, he writes this in his twenties now this is nineteen fifty three he's yeah. born in twenty four he's twenty nine years old when it comes out yeah absolutely.
1: I want to read you um oh I want to read to everyone the final vision oh, that John yeah. has yeah, um, yeah. when it gives you a sense of Baldwin as a writer and just how incredible his writing is, but also i I want to struggle with what his vision means. so this is his vision when he leaves the church after he's been saved. He would weep again, his heart insisted, for now his weeping had begun. He would rage again, said the shifting air, for the lions of rage had been unloosed. He would be in darkness again, in fire again, now that he had seen the fire and the darkness. He was free, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. He only had to stand fast in his liberty. He was in battle no longer this unfolding Lord's Day with this avenue, these houses, the sleeping, staring, shouting people. But he had entered into battle with Jacob's angel, with the princes and the powers of the air. And he was filled with a joy, a joy unspeakable, whose roots, though he would not trace them on this new day of his life, were nourished by the wellspring of a despair not yet discovered. The joy of the Lord is the strength of his people. Where joy was, their strength followed. Where strength was, sorrow came. Forever, forever and forever, said the arm of Elijah, heavy on his shoulder. And John tried to see through the morning wall, to stare past the bitter houses, to tear the thousand gray veils of the sky away, and look into the heart, that monstrous heart which beat forever, turning the astounded universe commanding the stars to flee away before the sun's red sandal, bidding the moon to wax and wane and disappear and come again, with a silver net holding back the sea, and out of mysteries abysmal, recreating each day the earth, that heart, that breath, without which not anything which was made was made. Tears came into his eyes again, making the avenue shiver, causing the houses to shake. His heart swelled, lifted up, faltered, and was dumb. Out of joy, strength came, strength that was fashioned to bear sorrow. Sorrow brought forth joy forever. This was Ezekiel's wheel in the middle of the burning air forever. And the little wheel ran by faith and the big wheel ran by the grace of God.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's our brother. (laughs) Tormented, tortured, beautiful, full of rage. In many ways, speaking for all, Of us, I just think that it's hard to be convinced that that particular John is going to be equipped enough. You know what I mean? It's. Shakespeare says ripeness is all nobody's born ripe and the question becomes at what point do we come ripe enough that we can endure with the level of our of spiritual and moral excellence and greatness that we're aspiring to. Not so much as an ideal. I think that's much more of a secular discourse. Jesus is not about ideals. The kingdom of God is not an ideal. It's a force and a reality that intervenes, realized, and enact it over against the hounds of hell. So in that sense, it's always already existential as Kierkegaard. I know Brother Soreen is probably here somewhere. And there he is. So he, he's named after the great Soreen Kierkegaard. You see, he already got a jump start in life. <laughs> <laughs> no, indeed indeed, indeed. But, but Baldwin is taking us to that zone. That's existential. That's not content ideals or regulative ideals and principles and abstractions and so forth. You see, but at the same time, I'm just not convinced. Really, I um, when I read that, it reminded me of the um, the other great Christian poet in the English language of the 19th century. We we had Hopkins. I think he's probably the greatest Christian poet. But it's Elizabeth Barrett Browning. It's no accident that du Bois so is the boys and souls of black folk refers to her twice in the epigraph. She's the only author who's referred twice because of her father's 10,000 acres in Jamaica, making money on the slave trade, and she becomes a leader in the abolitionist movement. But she used to say, she said, as a writer and as a person, I want to give people the sense. Of the saturation of Christ's blood in my soul, so that when I write, they can hear my cry in response to the sphinx of the ceaseless wailing of humanity to transform agony into what, your, what, what Dostoevsky calls the joy, that sorrowful transformation into joy that you're getting, Brothers Karamazov. Flannery O'Connor is one of the few Americans who understood that. Tony Morrison is one of the few, both of them Catholic. So much for we
1: Protestants.
0: (laughs) Catholics don't have monopoly either, but it's just, there's no accident that both of them are wrestling with that incarnationist conception of the world, that sacramentalist conception of, of human existence, you see. And to have that blood saturating and then manifest in a cry of heart, mind, soul in response to the ceaseless wailing, the tears that never stop that Beckett talks about in Waiting for Godot. The overflow of tears. Every generation never stops, ceaseless suffering, and yet not allow that to have the last word. See, that's Elizabeth Barrett Browning, wrestling with all of the disease every moment of her life and stealing away with Brother Robert to go to Italy, giving up everything. You see. That, to me, is a stronger armament, put it that way, than what I see in John. Mm-hmm. And it's ironic because the, black, uh, the best of black culture has more armament than what you see in John. See, that's well, where Fannie Lou Hamer comes from, you see. Fannie Lou Hamer, ironically, is closer to Elizabeth Barrett Browning than John Grimes in terms of what's going to sustain her in her confrontation with catastrophes and crises and evil. And yet she's going to be on the love train. She's going to be loving her way through the darkness. Can John love his way through the darkness? You think so?
1: I, I mean, I think it depends on how we interpret what Ezekiel's wheel represents here, yeah, yeah, yeah. and whether or not it comforts him or terrifies him. Absolutely, absolutely. But I just will note that this last line is uh, straight from, you know, a slave spiritual, as as many of his oh, best lines are. Absolutely. Um, yeah, the, uh, I mean, the the music of the black church is throughout his writing. Okay, last question because of time. Do you think that Baldwin's works belong in the canon of American letters, and if so, why should we be reading Baldwin in uh, a great books oh, education?
0: No, I mean, I'm not, you know, so concerned about just the uh, the canon or the pantheon because, you know, Sam Cooke and Curtis Mayfield, lives don't never won a Grammy. Millie Vanilli won two, so. I mean, <laughs> So the question becomes: point. You know, you know, we we need to talk <laughs> about canons. We need to talk to pantheon and so forth. I just want high quality, intellectual integrity, rigor, willingness to come to truth with what it means to be human. Does he meet that standard? Absolutely yes. Now, when you get these arbitrary canonizers out here. That's something else, and I thank God that Sam Cooke wasn't worried about the Grammys and worried about Millie Vanilli. Pearl Buck won the Nobel Prize, the Tolstoy, Proust, Joyce, Conrad. No, love you, Pearl.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> what does the Nobel Prize mean without Tolstoy and Proust and Joyce? Give me James, give me Leo. I'm not, and Pearl Buck's a good writer. I'm not putting it down, but she's not, in, she's not on the same level at all. Kafka, oh my god, yes, we understand. He's like Sam Cooke. So in that sense, our students must read great writers who are wrestling with the most profound conceptions of what it means to be human. If they're in the canon, fine. If they're not in the canon, stifter's not in the canon. People don't even read him anymore. That was a very novelist who helped keep Bonhoeffer alive in prison. He said, I can only read certain parts of the Bible and Stifter. People say, well, who who, who was Stifter? Stifter just dropped out. There's a whole lot of voices like that that have dropped out that were dealing with lower frequencies in terms of wrestling with what it means to be human so the answer in part is is yes in terms of we fight for the best Mm -hmm. but given you know the spiritual decay and the moral decrepitude and intellectual mediocrity that more and more is becoming the norm we tell our young folk Don't worry about the titles and the prizes of the world. You follow your quest for truth, goodness, beauty, and the holy and try to sustain a sense of what it means to acquire the highest level that you can relative to the gifts that you have and relative to the loves that you have received. And then proceed with a style and with a smile. Right at my brother.
1: Well, I don't think we could possibly end it on a higher note. Thank you for joining me. This is incredible. Thank you. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy and theology podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by Catholics for Hire, a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can just go to www.patreon.com slash to become a monthly patron. For our next episode, I'll be joined by Professor Fritz Bauerschmidt to discuss Graham Greene's The Heart of the Matter. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading.